Hi, everybody. This is Wynn Clayabaugh, and welcome to another wonderful issue of Masters. And when I tell you that I have been trying to schedule this man for several years, I'm not exaggerating, uh, but in those several years, while I was waiting for him to respond and to say yes, uh, I wasn't just sitting by the sidelines. I was busy. I have engaged my team in his podcast, in his written materials, his newsletters, his books, because his information is profound. It is just so right on and something that is not just for business leaders that need to hear this, but I love the fact that, that Jason, your message is also for parents. I mean, my gosh, parents need to understand what's on their plate. They need to understand, you know, who is this generation that we're trying to raise right now? And so the fact that you're covering all bases just makes me so, so happy. Wait, I haven't even said your name yet. This is Jason Dorsey. I'm interviewing Jason Dorsey. Jason, Welcome to Masters. Thank you. That was quite the introduction. There was a lot of suspense there. I was like, who's coming on? <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> well, let me tell everybody who, who Jason Dorsey is. He's a pioneering Gen Z millennial and generations speaker and researcher. Obviously, I'm going to read this. He is on a mission to separate generational myth from truth to solve generational challenges for leaders. Jason has received more than a thousand standing ovations for his unique presentations. And you're going to hear just audio. You're going to see why he's receiving these standing ovations. But he's headlined events around the world from India, Singapore, Switzerland, Chile, Finland, the UK, and France. He has appeared as a generational expert on more than 200 TV shows, such as 60 Minutes, 2020, CNN, The Early Show, The Today Show hundreds of other interviews, media interviews, New York Times cover story, quite the resume on this topic. Why, why do you think that this topic is just so uh, necessary for this generation and for every generation? Because you're not just talking to this generation. Your message uh, is for every generation. Why do you think that this is such a valuable topic? I think it's so valuable, at least our perspective on it is because people talk about generations, but they do so without data. And given that we're a research firm being able to bring data to the conversation, I think that's what's been missing. It's why some people will leave a conversation about generations feeling stereotyped, particularly because a lot of what's said about generations is negative. People sort of come at it as this generational conflict when the reality is we have lots of similarities. And if you understand our differences, you can actually create all kinds of new outcomes, which is incredibly exciting for us. And then I think people also saw the big shift, I would argue, is that when millennials really emerged in both the workforce and as consumers, people often thought, ah, oh, they're going to be like everybody else. Or my favorite is, oh, they'll just grow out of it. And, you know, I'm a millennial. And we didn't. <laughs> and we put a lot of businesses out of business. And we also started and helped grow tremendously exciting companies. And in the employment side, people said, oh, we're lazy. We're not working. Yet now we're the number one generation of managers in the United States and in many parts of the world and largest generation in the workforce. And we're driving tremendous change from you know, payroll all the way through communication, innovation, so forth. So I think what happened is as millennials emerged, and a lot of what used to work didn't work anymore. People sort of sort of woke up or became more of this generational conversation. That was sort of phase one. And then phase two is they said, well, we really need to get people that have good data, original data, and what I would argue statistically valid data to be able to better understand what's going on. And then we can add that to our own expertise to solve challenges. And so I think that's the reason why, you know, our work has certainly taken off. I've been, you know, grateful. We've done more than 65 generational studies around the world. 
We have studies going right now uh, in China, in Germany. Uh, we're about to launch several more across Southern Europe. Obviously, in the U.S., we do studies constantly. We have several in the field right now. And so for us, the more we put out the work that we do, uh, our flagship research study is called the State of Gen Z. The more people hear about that, the more the media picks it up, the more people want to hear more about it. And then now, obviously, with the new book, it's the best of all our insights in the economy. So I think the, the excitement around the work we're doing is we're separating myth from truth. We're debunking a lot of things that people think are true. And we're bringing to life new things that we all need to focus on and be aware of at this incredible time of sort of generational collision and emergence. So. I'm fired up. I think we're still just getting started. We've had over 700 clients already, many of the biggest brands in the world, but it's still just the very beginning of what we're able to do. And as we collect more data, uh, the more insights we find and, and the more new discoveries it leads to, which gets me excited to share. <laughs> I, I can tell you're excited. I, I was watching a, a presentation that you did and uh, reading about who was in the audience and the people who were in the audience controlled over a billion dollars of revenue and that was the group that brought you in because they needed to hear your expertise and your information to help them become more successful. And so, yeah, what you're sharing is, is so, so valuable. Hey, Jason, do you think that our listeners need some sort of a little history lesson? You know, I'm, I'm a baby boomer, so I was born in 1959. Do they need to understand uh, the different generations? You're, you're a millennial. By the way, you're married to a Gen X. How does that work out? <laughs> She's just right because she has better data. No. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm millennial. My wife's in Gen X, and our daughter's in Gen Z. So a little bit of alphabet soup. And then in our research firm, it's called the Center for Generational Kinetics uh, here in Austin, Texas. Uh, we have four different generations that work in the firm. So you know, we're living this every day. I, I do think uh, sort of a high level background on maybe what a generation is, and then who the generations are is probably helpful and a good place to start. So when we think about a generation. The way we define a generation is very different than the way other people do. We define a generation as a segment of a geographically linked population that experienced similar social and cultural events at roughly the same time in their maturation, leading to predictability by scenario, which is a really fancy way that our PhDs say that basically means it's a group of people born about the same time and raised in about the same place. And the latter part is really the key, and this is what I focus on a lot, is geography has a huge impact on generations. And I say that because people talk in broad strokes about generations, yet they step away from the role of geography, and it's so incredibly important. So in the US, for example, where I live, we'll see differences between urban and rural within the same generation. I grew up in a small town in Texas, and my best friend is from New York City. His high school graduating class had students from 40 different countries. He and I were born same year, same month, we have some different views of the world based on where we were raised. Trends tend to originate in urban areas and ripple out to um, more rural areas over time. And so as you sort of think about this, as we travel around the world, millennials, for example, in the U.S. are different than millennials, let's say, in, in Europe. And even within Europe, you'll see differences. So the point here is that generations are not a box that each of us will fit neatly inside based on our birth year. People try to use them that way, and it, it doesn't work. But what generations absolutely are, and we prove this through research and strategy work and all the consulting and all the board work I do, is that generations are incredibly powerful and predictive clues to do three things. And that is to communicate, build trust, and drive influence with those who are older and younger than yourself. And if you use it that way, it's like a head start to be able to do the things that you want. Marketing, sales, customer experience, recruit, retain, develop talent, and so forth. And so knowing that, then you can sort of move into who the generations are. So at the high level, they're clues. They're basically a group of people born about the same time, raised in about the same place. 
they're shaped by very specific trends. Uh, in the Z economy book, I go into all the trends. We obviously don't have time for that here, but probably the two most important relevant, because I'm obviously a big fan of yours and I've read your book. The two trends that most stand out that are relevant, I think for your listeners, the first is parenting. And we never talk about parenting. It has a huge impact on generations, how you're raised, massive impact. So much of our research is actually on parenting because parenting informs behaviors like, is a job beneath you? Should you go to college? Do you have to go to college? Should you get student loans debt? Is credit bad? Do you, should you get married? Should you buy a home? Like all these things are influenced by parenting. So parenting is the first. And the second one uh, is technology. And what we've discovered is that every one of us has a different natural relationship with technology that is largely driven by our age. But that relationship with technology is invisible until you're forced to work with somebody who has a different relationship with technology. And as we talk about Gen Z, I can share some examples of what they think is normal that other generations now think has changed. Really fascinating. As we look at parenting and technology and things like mobility, we have more 20-somethings living at home now than since the Great Depression. So we sort of look at all these things to help inform who the generations are. And then we look at what are called generation-defining moments. And I listed all of these in the book, but I'll give you one or two here that I think are most relevant. So for millennials, like myself, the generation-defining moment was September the 11th, 2001. That was our where were you when moment. I was out in Los Angeles, I think actually not far from where you live. I was out there to film a TV show. And I'll never forget it because I was out there with my dad. Uh, my dad's born in 1952. He's six foot five, this really big guy. You know, he'll show up probably in overalls. He very much looks like Texas, uh, you know, where we grew up. And, and so my dad and I are in Los Angeles. I'll never forget it. I wake up on 9-11, turn on the TV, and I see what everybody else sees. And I, as a millennial, completely freak out, right? I'm crying, I'm a mess because I went, even though I'm from Texas, both sides of my family are from New York. I went to college in New York and my best friends work downtown in the city. So I'm just a total mess. My dad, born in 1952, baby boomer, is sitting on the couch looking at the same TV I am, but he has no emotion at all. So I'm crying, he has no emotion, sort of stone-faced, very, very, like almost emotionless. And about 30 minutes later, my grandfather calls me. My grandfather was about 80 years old at the time, grew up in Brooklyn, very much from Brooklyn. That was, that was his home. And he calls me and he says, I'll never forget this. He says, J-Boy, it's going to be okay. We've been through this before and we got through it and we'll get through it again. I promise you it's going to be okay. And for him, what he was thinking about on 9-11 was Pearl Harbor. And then he played the movie forward and sort of, said, it's going to be okay, we've been through this before. My dad, born in 1952, finally, eventually, years later, told me what he was thinking, which is he was looking at the TV and looking at me and thinking of the Vietnam draft and thinking I, as his oldest son, was about to get drafted. I'm watching the same TV. I don't have anything to play for. I'm in the moment. I'm freaking out. I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm scared. I'm worried. I'm everything that you can imagine with a generation-defining moment. And then today's 24-year-olds, who are, you know, this is the demarcation between millennials and Gen Z. Today's 24-year-olds who are in Gen Z do not remember 9-11. For them, it's always been history. It's something they learned about in school or from a parent or, or somebody else. It's not a contemporary event for them. You have to remember where you are, create fear of the unknown going forward. And so when we talk about the generational birth years, sometimes there's an event like 9-11, which was the event that changed my life, you know, my generation defining moment. And then sometimes you don't have an event that separates one generation from the others, like millennials to Gen X, there's no event. And then you have events like COVID-19, which is, we believe, the defining event of Gen Z. So all of these things sort of mix together that help us know, okay, sometimes a generation ends and a new one begins because of an event, and sometimes there's no event and there's a transitional period. And so as you sort of look high level, just real quick about the birth years, 
we look at Gen Z, our big discovery is that the um, oldest members in Gen Z are about 24 years old. They're born around 1996 at the earliest. And this is important because we got uh, many of the biggest research firms in the world had to change their birth years for Gen Z because they said Gen Z went to 2000 and we proved them wrong and said, no, you had to be able to remember the event and be changed because of the event, create fear uh, of the unknown. And if you go younger than 96, they were just too young. They don't remember it. It's always been history. So you have to back up to be old enough for the event to impact you. So the oldest members of Gen Z, uh, 1996, the youngest members we think are around 2015. That Those years will shift as they get older because we need them to get older to do more studies. But the key is they're right now the entire 18 to 24 or 16 to 24 working demographic. They're the fastest generation coming in on a percentage basis. Very conservative with money, which I'd love to talk more about. Totally different relationship with technology, which is really shocking and affecting everybody else. And the most diverse generation. So they're bringing tremendous, uh, a whole different view of the world in many areas that we study that we can talk about. So they're the youngest. And then right before them are millennials like me. We were born somewhere between 1977 and 1995-ish. And I say ish because on the front end, you could be born anywhere from 77 to 1980 and either be Gen X or millennial, it just depends on where you were raised. You know, were you, was your family rich? Did you live in a city? Did you travel? Did your parents go to college, et cetera? So anywhere from 77 to 80 is what we call a cusper. And those are people born on the edges. They tend to be a mix of both generations. Uh, and they're a bridge. It's a huge asset because they're empathetic to both sides of the generations, one before and after. Millennials are the largest generation in the workforce, about 80 million. And for those of, of your listeners who follow our work, as we've been saying for the last few years, millennials have split into two generations. We have megalennials, uh, the millennials who show up, go to work, do the things they're supposed to be doing, just sort of like moving on with their life. And then we have the millennials who are struggling and really feeling like things aren't fair and they can't pull themselves forward. And as the generation splits, what we found is for some reason, and we don't know why, around the age of 30, you self-select into one part of the generation or the other, and you can no longer relate to the other part of your own generation, which is why it's interesting that the group most offended by millennials acting entitled at work are other millennials who do not feel entitled <laughs> because we think the rest of the generation has given us a bad reputation. So this huge generational split, which we can talk more about, we have this all over our website because historically we've always had late bloomers, particularly in the U.S., but late bloomers used to be 25 and not 35. And then our other big discovery with millennials is that people always say millennials are tech savvy. And I know you and I've talked about this before. We always say, oh, millennials are so tech savvy. But the reality is our discovery is that millennials are not tech savvy. What they actually are, they are tech dependent. And there's a huge difference, which impacts everything from recruiting to retention and so forth. Well, why, so why is that important for us to know the difference between that, between them being tech savvy and tech dependent? Because if somebody approaches you to engage with you through technology and they think you're tech savvy, they think you're going to want more options, they think you're going to be able to do more sophisticated things, and that's your natural sort of preference. And what we found with millennials is the completely opposite. They wanted fewer options. They expect it to just work. And it's all about the user interface for the user experience, which completely changes how you do marketing, how you do internal communications, how you think about reaching out to them for recruiting. And that's why you're seeing this real rush to simplicity, because millennials don't necessarily care how it works. They just want to know it's going to work <laughs> and it should be easier and easier and easier to do. More things should be happening behind the scenes. So when you go to develop, let's say websites or technology, because obviously I work in venture capital, uh, you're trying to solve for the simplicity piece because that's what we know drives the most conversion and satisfaction right now. So it's this idea, this sort of predisposition of, okay, they're tech dependent versus tech savvy. And if I start from tech dependence, then I'm going to give it to them in a way that really engages with how they look at technology versus what I think they want, which is something very complex. And that's not what millennials want, which we see repeatedly. So really important from a design and strategy standpoint, 
uh, it should just happen. And ideally the technology should just happen behind the scenes and it should know more about me than I know. <laughs> sort of like Netflix is just gonna tell me what I wanna watch next. Right? These sorts of things really are playing out. Huge impact. And I can give you some more examples in a second. And then we get to Gen X who was born about 1965 to 1976-ish. They're sort of the bridge between millennials and baby boomers. Gen X isn't talked about enough. They're very skeptical. They're into the data. My wife is in Gen X. She has a PhD. She loves to say, trust, but verify. <laughs> Gen X always wants to go on our websites because we have all our research up there for free and people download it because it's always Gen X who wants to go see the data. You know, where'd you get your data from and so forth. Gen X is incredibly important. And from a retention standpoint, they're the most important generation to retain right now because they have the experience and they're deciding right now, are they going to stay with your company and finish out their career or are they going to go somewhere else? They're also being pulled in multiple directions during the time of COVID, which is super interesting in terms of helping their parents, helping their kids, and then also maintaining their job or career. And then you have boomers, who you talked about in the very beginning, uh, who are now generally the oldest generation. They're born about 1946 to 1964. We actually think boomers are two generations, not one. Older boomers and younger boomers had different formative events in terms of things that were happening around them. And that really did shape them in different ways as we see that play out when we talk with boomers. The key thing is, People say, particularly young people say, oh, well, baby boomers aren't good with technology. And I'm like, what? <laughs> they invented the phone you're using to make fun of them. <laughs> you can't even connect to the Wi-Fi. You know? And so we, we take our own lens and we apply it to others. And what we find is baby boomers can be very good with technology. They have the longest and best relationships uh, in their industries. They have access to capital more than anybody else. They serve on all the corporate boards, like the ones that I serve on. It's me and a bunch of baby boomers. They have the most experience. So you start to look at them. Baby boomers are still the most influential generation in the workplace because of sort of where they are within that. Yes, things are transitioning and we're going to see how that plays out over the next 10, 15 years. But what we do know is because of COVID-19 and many of our studies have proven this, boomers plan to work longer than they did before. And so now you're going to start to see a bottleneck all the way down in many of these organizations. So yeah, lots of generational things happening. And if you understand them, then you can inform your marketing and your experiences and so forth. So that was my high level win. How did I do? Oh, you did so good. You did so good. And I like the fact that as you say, you're not putting generations in a box. It's not necessarily always about their birth years. There's so many other factors that play into this. And, and this is all important because, you know, the, the information that you share um, helps us dispel a lot of these myths that people have. Because I think that every generation thinks that the generation that comes after them is entitled and they're lazy and they're, they're all of these things. And and what you're here to say is that, no, these are generations that are really, really important. For me, it was really important for me as a baby boomer to embrace the millennial generation because I felt like they were a catalyst for so many positive, incredible changes. You know, as a baby yeah. boomer, I was taught to believe that, you know, I, I will sacrifice and compromise my health, my family, everything to make money. And then, of course, maybe that didn't go as planned. And so I don't want to raise my child that way. And so she's being raised with a whole different set of, of mm -hmm. values of, of what's important, what she should focus on. But then also I have thousands of people in my organization. I have 14,000 students that attend my schools. I, I'm guessing that the majority of them are Gen Z or, or millennial. And I see the power that they have as a catalyst to make such positive changes, not just for me personally, but on this planet. Do you find that that's the case, that the generation that's the, the powerful generation, and so right now we're saying it's, the, it's millennials and Gen Z, that they are oftentimes the catalyst for bringing about changes for all generations? 
Yeah, absolutely. In two ways. So historically, the emerging generation of adults always brings sort of uh, new things. Now, we could call it change. This is sort of the irony. If you interview them or we do studies, they don't think what they're bringing is change oftentimes because it's all they've ever known. So, like, I'll just give you a simple example. One of the companies that's in the book, the economy book, is called Instant Financial, and they figured out how to pay every employee 50% of their wages at the end of every shift with no cost to the employee. So you finish your shift at the restaurant or the salon or wherever it is, you walk out, you get a message on your phone and it says, Jason, you earned $68.12 today. Would you like half your wages, yes or no? And if I click yes, whammo, the money shows up in my account with no fees to me. Why is that important? Because young adults today will only know, they will only remember having the option of getting paid every single day. So to them, that's not changed, it's just normal, where other generations are like, whoa, we've always been paid every two weeks or every month or whenever it is. This is huge change, but yet it's all they've ever known. Uh, there's another company in the book called Onboarder, and they do text message onboarding. So your whole onboarding process is by text message. It's amazing. It's, this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And it's grown really, really fast. And that's important because now you're gonna have all these young people who prefer text message to email, which we know, and they're having the entire onboarding experience by text message. So they'll onboard will text you at three o'clock when your energy's low, uh, what's your favorite snack? And you'll say, I don't know, granola bars. And they'll tell your manager, your team members, whoever it is. And then on your first day of work, even if you're working from home, they'll send you a basket of granola bars so that and say, hey, we know that at three o'clock you want something like this. So we're really excited you're part of the team all through text message, amazing. But now their expectation is they're gonna be, be able to onboard and have communication by text rather than email or sit in some onboarding you know, session. So it's important to know that's all they've ever known. So they're gonna be bringing this forward. Now, when we look at social causes, this is super interesting. When, when we look at social causes in our state of Gen Z study we do every year, for the last several years, you know, we've been doing this now, I think we're on year five, uh, the number one most important social cause that Gen Z is fired up about is climate change. So climate change, or they would say climate crisis, is the most important thing that they are worried about, that they're focused on, that they want to take action on. However, this year, we actually saw climate change drop to number two, and number one became social justice. And so social justice jumped up number one, and at a much higher emotional level than the other ones that we saw, including climate change. And we're actually seeing the generation start to refine, if you will, or, or reshape their priorities in our new study, which we haven't released, Gen Z will actually choose not to work for an employer that doesn't align with their social cause values. They're turning away from brands that don't align with those values. They're very much saying, I wanna make decisions in alignment with my values around these social causes. And so they're bringing that forward and sort of the last piece is how they use social media. I mean, what's so amazing about Gen Z in particular, and, and we write about this a lot in the Z Economy book, is that for the first time ever, technology trends are starting with the youngest and rippling up to the oldest. This is one of our most famous discoveries. And I share that because now, if you wanna know what a 40-year-old or 50-year-old, six-year-old are gonna do in the future, you look at what teenagers and early 20-somethings do right now. And we've seen this play out over and over again. So now, all of a sudden, these young members are driving tremendous influence in politics, even if they're not old enough to vote, and shaping brands and brand conversation, and shaping how people think about employers. I mean, all of these things, learning, you name it, it's so amazing. So it's starting from the youngest, and rippling up to the oldest. And that's gonna have huge implications on all of us long-term. So as we think about these generations, the key is that yes, it's changed to all the rest of us, but to the emerging generation, it's all they've ever known. That's just what's normal 
to them. Like you and I, when we remember dial-up internet, right? You obviously remember things before that. And, and so as we start to think about that, it's like, wow, such an amazing shift. We went from dial-up, I don't know, to broadband or whatever. And all of a sudden you have a group coming in that everything's always been instant. I can download the whole movie right now. What are you talking about? We're going to take an hour. <laughs> and so it's so fascinating that this is what is normal to them and this is what they're going to bring in. And so as leaders, the question we have to ask ourselves is, okay, am I recruiting in a way that attracts the best from Gen Z? Am I engaging in a way that keeps our best talent? Am I marketing in a way that's gonna build trust and awareness and influence so that I can help them meet their goals and I can meet mine? And that's where I think it gets really interesting, but you can't do that unless you look at the research to really understand their mindset, how they operate in the world, what makes them so different, and then also the similarities that we can then build on these great teams and organizations and so forth. And I, I think Gen Z is so exciting. I mean, one, one point that I think is really relevant for the work you do is that our research has shown Gen Z is much more practical or frugal with their money. And that always surprises people. Everybody's like, oh, young people, they're just spending all their money. It's totally false. That is completely a myth. Uh, what happened is that Gen Z came of age around the Great Recession. They saw their parents struggle. They heard about it. They saw people lose their houses, all the things. They saw millennials crash into wage stagnation, rising cost of living, student loan debt, all these things. And so Gen Z, sort of uh, the pendulum swung the other way and they became much more practical or conservative with their money. And so what we see is their savings rates are much higher. They have emergency savings accounts on their phone, whether that's the Cash App or Venmo or whatever. And 12% of them are already saving for retirement before age 22. They're looking for employers that are stable and they want to know about the benefits. Like, who are these people? You know, <laughs> but we think it's going to bode really well long-term for the country. And it's so interesting because the perception is young people are out there spending money, yet they're driving double-digit growth at thrift stores. It's just so fascinating. So when you talk about some of the unexpected discoveries that you made about Gen Z, these are some of the ones that you're referring to. The fact that they are, are more frugal, the fact that they're already planning for retirement, the fact that they are saving for a rainy day. And all of these are important items and trends for us to understand. Not, not just if we're trying to hire and retain Gen Z, which let's talk about that and, and why companies need to be focused on that, uh, but also in, in marketing. Gen Z controls what, what buying power today? What's, uh, there's what's the a, dollar amount? Yeah, there's lots of varying information on that. You know, it'd be very easy to say that they impact at least two to $300 billion. The, okay. the issue is not only is it their actual purchasing power, which grows every single day, right? Because every single day, more of them are turning 18, they're becoming more self-reliant, they're doing the things that you would expect them to do. But the as important part is they influence so many other generations and what they buy, particularly through social media, particularly around brand engagement. And so when we look at Gen Z, we're not just looking at what's their direct spend, but we're actually looking at is what's the spend that they influence of other generations. And then the number is just massive. I mean, they way over index for influence as consumers because of their use and understanding of social media. So well, if we're talking about my daughter and her influence over my spending at American Girl Doll last weekend. <laughs> you know, <that's>, uh... <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better. Before COVID, I actually went to the American Girl a store with my daughter, who's nine, Raya, and uh, we did high tea. So uh, I, I did the whole thing and it, I'll never forget it. Neither will she. And I'm, I'm glad I did it one time. And uh, that was great. So. <laughs> <laughs> so that, yes. So they do have influence over spending power. Absolutely. So yeah, you, you, sure. I, I heard you once say that Gen Z will put lots of companies out of business. What did you mean by that? 
Yeah, what we see is that with every new generation that emerges with a new set of behaviors and a new set of expectations, it puts traditional business models at risk. You know, you can always use sort of the fabled examples of Blockbuster or whoever, but the reality is Gen Z is coming of age shopping very differently than other generations. Now, you know, you've seen and you've heard all these conversations that COVID-19 has driven tremendous acceleration, right? Oh, people stopped going to the bank. Now they're using mobile banking or they're doing telemedicine or whatever it is. These things already existed. It was other generations that were just taking their time sort of getting to it. You know, my dad always joked like he would never do mobile banking. They're definitely going to, you know, steal your money and identity theft and on and on. Now he's like, why did I ever go to a bank? (laughs) And so, you know, we're seeing that acceleration there. But what's interesting is for Gen Z, that's all they've ever known. They don't have to attach, I need to go to bank branch to do anything. And so for brands that don't start out with, okay, so Gen Z's coming into the world, very digital. In our research study, we found they were the most, Gen Z's most willing to give up their personal data to have a better online experience. They expect it to be fast. They expect it to be easy. They expect it to be deeply personalized to them. And they expect that if they buy something and they don't like it, they should be able to return it at no cost. But if they have a great experience, they also expect to tell all their friends through social media. So as we look at Gen Z, there are brands that are already well positioned and say, okay, hey, we've already, we're already got a strong digital footprint. We're going to keep going that direction. And there's others who keep thinking things are going to change and eventually come back. And they're not. And, and so that's why I think a lot of brands are at risk because their business models were not designed to be digital first and in some cases digital only. And now COVID has upended all of this. We wrote the book before COVID and then went back and updated it after COVID. And so what we saw was before COVID, a lot of brands were very resistant to make some of these changes. Um, however, now they've seen they have to, or as we've seen, lots of companies went out of business because they couldn't figure out how to make that leap to digital. And so I think with Gen Z, the way they look at payments, the way they look at rewards and coupons, which is a huge deal, the way they look at checking out brands on ratings and reviews, uh, there are definitely going to be companies that go out of business. Now, I will also say there's going to be way more companies that choose to adapt and have tremendous growth because the key here is many companies did not respond to millennials. They really thought millennials were just going to grow out of it and everything was going to be like it always was. And then it wasn't. Millennials didn't grow out of it. And it had huge impacts on everything from financial services to how people buy cars, right? Now I'm going to buy a car online. They're going to do my financing online. They're going to deliver the car. I get to drive it for seven days. If I don't like the car for seven days, they come back and pick it up and say, thank you so much. And that's the end of it. The car dealers would have never imagined that that would have really worked. And yet now we have Carvana and that's all they do and just massively record numbers. So I think there's going to be huge opportunities, but you've got to be willing to adapt. Nobody's asking you to cater or coddle to or do any of that nonsense. We're just saying, we know how this generation communicates, shops and buys. And if you know that, you can decide, do I want to put myself in their path of purchases, in the path of loyalty, in the path of great experience? Or am I going to, you know, intentionally choose not to? Some people will choose not to and, you know, they'll take the risk. But for lots of people, they're going to say, this is a huge opportunity. This generation is completely up for grabs. They're making major purchases later. That means right now is exactly the time to engage them, to understand them. And if you do it with data, you have a huge head start. So I do think Gen Z is going to put a lot of companies out of business, no question about it. But I think equally as much, Gen Z is going to create massive opportunity for companies who adapt and for the companies that come out of this that are new. Uh, You know, one of the companies I work with, they've developed this really exciting adaptive learning technology and they're helping uh, serve up the best courses in the world and best content in the world for Gen Z as they're learning in, let's say, sixth grade. Uh, They're also engaging parents to understand what assignments are due and so forth. So all of a sudden, you see this innovation coming about that's really adapting and riding sort of the Gen Z wave, which I think is the big opportunity if you want to be in business 10, 20 years from now because Gen Z today has the greatest lifetime value of any generation of consumers. So I would like to talk about Gen Z 
first as hiring them and retaining them. I mm-hmm. want to talk about them a bit more about marketing to them, meaning their spending power, which we've touched on, and also about parenting uh, mm-hmm. Gen Z. So let's talk about hiring and retaining. And something that you said, I, w- I was watching a, a TED talk, uh, this woman who, I guess it was her job in a high school to manage the 10 hours or whatever it was, the 10 hours of required volunteer time that uh, high schoolers, seniors had to donate or give part of their curriculum. So if you want to graduate from high school, part of the high school experience as a senior is to complete 10 hours of volunteerism. And that was her job and she would engage them and get them all excited about it and, and hopefully get them to buy into it to volunteer their 10 hours. And then she said, all of a sudden, one time they raised her hand, hey, uh, my nonprofit that I have been working on for the last five years does that count towards my 10 hours? And she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, my nonprofit, which I've been working on since I was you know, 10 years old. And I totally related to this because, again, my daughter is eight years old. So she's a, a year younger than your daughter. A couple of years ago, started her animal rescue club. Uh, and, and prior to that, it was raising money for the homeless, for, for the Fred Jordan mission in downtown on Skid Row in Los Angeles. Totally her idea is not like we said, sweetheart, you need to uh, take notice of this. You need to start your own foundation. You need... We didn't do any of that other than exposed her. We exposed her. See that person over there? They're homeless, and that's what that means. And, and then, of course, she took it to the next level. Well, who are they? What's her name? Why are they there? What happened? And she wants to find out all of the facts. And then on her own decides, okay, I need to do something about it. And then again, all of a sudden, one day, she came out of the office after being in there for three hours and venting and creating something. And it was her new animal rescue club, which I think she's raised about $15,000 for best friends, animal society. And she talks about this, my foundation, my foundation. And so, and you were mentioning earlier that that was a, a big part of employee engagement as to whether or not, because we need to listen up everybody. We need to be engaging in hiring Gen Z and, and helping them, come on board with our, our companies, helping them to stay loyal. And what you were talking about was the importance of, uh, first of all, you said it was, oh my gosh. I'm, yeah, social I'm, justice is number one. And we see that around equity, equality, diversity, and inclusion. You know, we see that around pay equity. I mean, really fascinating. So yeah, it, what's interesting to me is their top social cause is, is very much other focused, being on other people. And so that I think is really powerful and inspiring. And for companies that want to effectively recruit and keep Gen Z, you definitely need to have causes that you support. But I'm going to go further than that because you know me when I don't shy from uh, (laughs) uh, being provocative. You know, the historic way that many companies did that is they just cut a check. And as I always joke in my speeches, so there you are on the football field holding this huge check trying to, you know, wow a generation that's never seen a check and definitely doesn't read cursive. You know? <laughs> like, Isn't that, that funny? Oh, that's so work funny. With this generation, right? And even more so, Gen Z doesn't buy into the fact that, okay, you wrote a check. You're just, that's not enough. Like, so what? You wrote a check. What did you actually do? And so Gen Z wants to see real action. They want to see videos, photos. Are you in the community rolling up your sleeves, doing these things to really build people up? And I say that because it's so incredibly important. It's not just about the money. It's really about the action around these social causes. And you've seen this here recently uh, in the news, a lot of blowback for companies that just cut checks and felt like they had done what they needed to do and just kept on doing what they've always done. And now they're getting called out for that. So social causes on the recruiting side, what's called employment branding, very, very important. But I would argue it's also important on the retention side. 
employees, particularly Gen Z and even millennials both, know that they want to work for companies that stand for something besides just making money. And I think all generations sort of do. Like, I mean, there's definitely something we'd all love to work for a company that makes the world a better place. I think that's a sort of a great truism. But this is so important that younger employees will leave a company that they don't feel is having that impact. And I think that's a difference. It's not, it's not will you stay, uh, it's will you leave if they're not having the impact that you want. And so that's where I think you start to get into the nuance of these social causes are incredibly important. We need to actually focus on it, generate some real results, take tangible action and not just make it about money. And well, I think that's what's exciting. How, how dangerous is it for companies to lose this generation, to lose their loyalty first as an employee? Because they might, people listening to this right now might be having the attitude like, well, I don't care, let them leave. They're entitled anyway. So what's your response back to that? Yeah, we don't see that with Gen Z because remember in our work, and there's a lot of this in the Z economy book, Gen Z's coming in with a very different attitude, at least for what we're seeing in the national studies. They think they're going to have to work longer and harder in order to build a successful career. They're saving money disproportionately. They think when they look ahead, there's not gonna be social security, so they gotta be able to support themselves. They want to know about stability of an employer. And what that all translates into is in our large employers, right? We have lots of companies that are very, very large that are clients of ours. They had higher, this is pretty stunning, they had higher Gen Z retention than they did millennial retention prior to COVID-19, which is stunning and it should be the opposite. And what's really interesting and very provocative, and, and we write about a lot in the book, and you can see it also on our website, we predict that some members of Gen Z are going to leapfrog some of the millennial generation, my own generation, because of how Gen Z approaches work, right? They're trying to graduate college with less debt if they choose to go. They're taking a new look at trade schools because they see that there's lots of stability around that. I mean, it's just very different. And so they're sort of positioning themselves to be successful. And I think that's why when, when employers really understand who Gen Z is and understand a lot of these behavioral characteristics that we see, they're going, I really want to hire Gen Z. <laughs> right? I think they're going to save us, right? This is a big deal. Uh, in fact, on paper, you'll get a kick out of this. In many ways, Gen Z actually looks like baby boomers. Uh, we call them a throwback generation <laughs> because really? of many of their characteristics. Yeah. So I think it's super exciting what Gen Z brings. We're incredibly optimistic about the impact they're going to have on the workforce, on the planet, and communities. Uh, and yes, lots of people don't agree with them. That's all fine. We're all entitled to our own opinion. But we believe holistic that Gen Z brings so many good things their relationship with technology, their relationship with money, and so on and so forth, that we think is really going to help move us forward as a country and as, a, as communities and as people. So we're very bullish on them as a generation that, you know, we can all find people who are entitled in every generation. That doesn't go away. But overall, we're very optimistic about them. So I would say to employers, look, if, if you want to be around in the next five, 10 years, and you know you want to attract quality employees, and you know that you want to bring in that next generation of talent, uh, don't overlook Gen Z because they're young right? There's this tendency, oh, they're young. They're not going to stay. What value do they bring? I would argue it's the opposite. I think they bring a tremendous amount. And for everybody who's ever heard me speak, you know, I say this every time, every single generation is important. Every single generation brings value and we need every single generation. And that is absolutely true when it comes to Gen Z. So I think they're in the right place at the right time with the right skill set for so many companies. So I know this is kind of a tough question, but what advice could you give to a company who maybe they've been around for a hundred years and maybe they're selling something that isn't considered a sexy product or service, so to speak. They're mm -hmm. losing employees because of retirement or in other reasons. Uh, they've got to attract this next generation and with social justice causes alone, 
What advice do you have? What do they need to do to be able to start attracting this generation? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a pretty typical situation for us, particularly since we work in uh, private equity. So what we're looking at first is we want to get the facts. And so what we want to do is what we call a generational snapshot. And we do two of them. One generational snapshot is of the employees. And so think of it like a pie chart that shows you the percentage of each generation within the organization. And that's usually pretty shocking. People are almost always stunned about the actual generational breakdown within their organization, particularly when they see it visually. And that helps us to get a sense of where we are, particularly when you overlay that with retention and say, who are we losing? Are they retiring? Are people leaving that we wanted to keep? Or are people leaving that we you know, wanted to leave? Like all of those things sort of help you with that lens. And then you do it on the customer side as well. And the combination of the two really gives you a tremendous amount of insight to understand what are the actions we need to take as we want to move this business forward. So when you think about recruiting and tying it to social justice, and some of these other key things, you know, our research, and I think this is probably helpful, I should have said this at the beginning, we're behavioral researchers. So most of the data in the world that people talk about is what we call tracking data. And so tracking data is tracking something that has happened. So uh, sales went up, sales went down, recruiting went up, recruiting went down, retention went up, retention went down. We come up with lots of different ways to say that. But fundamentally, it's always tracking something that has already happened. So it's telling us about history. That history may have been one second ago, but it's still history. But what it doesn't tell us is it doesn't tell us why that happened. So our work is focused on why these actions are happening. Because if I can add the why it's happening to the what happened, then I can change the future. Then I can take people's greatest you know, expertise and strength and so forth. We can add that together and really innovate and drive change going forward and new results. So as we think about Gen Z and recruiting and tying it to these, there's a few things that we know stand out. Uh, number one, Gen Z's best first place they go, and all this is in the book with a lot more detail, uh, we know the first thing that Gen Z does when it comes to looking for a job is they talk to friends and family. Now, why is that? Because they're still young. So we're talking about 16 to 24 year olds. So the first place to go is the people already know in order to get advice, where should I apply, a place to avoid, and so on and so forth. So they're always gonna start there, which means referrals to their friends are the number one best place to drive great new hires. And what we do is we incentivize those referrals. Uh, historically, the way people did referrals is they would say, okay, for everybody you refer that we hire, we're gonna give you, I'm gonna make up a number, $500, $1,000, $100, pick the number. Uh, the problem with that is, they either gave it in the very beginning when they started or they gave it a year later because they want to make sure they stayed. And as behaviorists, what we found is that's not the right cadence to do it. So what you should do, whatever that reward is or incentive is, you give them 25% when the new person starts, 25% at six months, and 50% at the end of the year. Why do you do that? Because you want to give them that instant uh, gratification of, wow, I referred somebody and I got a check. You want to make sure they keep their friends there for six months. And then if they hit that one-year goal, which is when they've already made back all the money from whatever recruiting incentives times some big multiple, then you give them that last bit of money, the $500, so that big carrot's at the end. So you're actually creating alignment, and they're essentially working as a recruiter for you <laughs> to keep your friend, their friends there that you did. So we know friend recruiting is the number one thing to do. Second thing we know is that Gen Z goes on job search websites. So think about like Indeed, Glassdoor, and so forth, similar to millennials. But what we found is that Gen Z is very focused on the first sentence or two of the job. Uh, and that's important because that's all they read before they decide if they're gonna read more. And we look at what in a job attracts them, uh, things like stability, which many companies don't play up. They try to be sexy like you're talking about, but what we find is that they really want stability, yet stability is often not talked about. Benefits aren't talking about. So we see that they want things like the top three things are salary range, so not exact salary, but a range, uh, scheduling flexibility, and then benefits. So you wanna really put those into that job description as you talk about social causes, mission, you know, conscious capitalism, whatever, um, sort of however you align. But here's the secret part. Then we get into actually getting them to apply. And I have this thing I always say when I'm speaking, which is you can't hire people who don't apply. <laughs> right. So we need people to apply. 
and how do we drive actual applications? To me, that's what recruiting is. Selection is figuring out, are they the right fit for you and are you the right fit for them? I got it. But recruiting is actually getting them to raise their hand and say, I am interested in working here. And what we found is Gen Z wants to apply for a job on a mobile device. And the problem is almost every company that we work with says, oh, Jason, we've got mobile applications. I said, really? Well, let's fill out an application right now. Take out your phone. And this could be the CEO, this could be the board, it could be whoever it is. We take out our phones, we go to whatever page they think it is, and we start to try to fill it out, and they go, this is terrible. I'm like, exactly. And so the problem is, job applications often weren't designed to be mobile. And so what we found with Gen Z is they need to be able to fill it out on their phone, and this is the key. They need to be able to save as they go. And the reason is, they generally don't have all the information, they got a lot of stuff going on, so as long as they start it, and you get a contact method, cell phone, email, whatever it is, generally cell phone's best, then if they don't finish it within some period of time, whatever that is, three days, five days, two days, you pick your time, then you remarket to them like a abandoned shopping cart and you say, hey Jason, we saw that you started an application with us, we think we might be a fit, we'd love to see if we are, please finish your application here so we can have a conversation. And all of a sudden, you can increase applications by 50%, five zero, without paying a nickel, just because you made it so they could save and then you re-engage them. Oh well, they might actually be interested. See, it's tricks like these we put through the book because if it works and it's very tangible, then people will try others. Then as you talked about the social causes, you want to bring those to life with video, people actually talking about what they do. And then as you start to have that conversation, then you can move further along into the company's culture and workplace and so forth. But the key is you've got to look great upfront on digital through the mobile device, allow them to start that application easily, and then you can actually take them through that process, particularly in competitive industries where you're really trying to bring in this talent. Let's talk about your company. So is your company, like the body that makes up your company, are there causes that they're more passionate about than others? And so you steer the company in that direction? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the top Would you mind sharing with us what, what, what they yeah. are? I mean, I, yeah. I can share with you what they are in my company. I, I'm always yeah. curious to know what, what other companies, what other populations are, are focused on as to what are the important causes that we need to be focused on as a company, which I absolutely 1000% believe is why many of them are attracted to, to come and work with me or to attend my schools or whatever. You, you've heard of Generation G. Have, is that term familiar to you? And the G stands for generosity? Mm-hmm. I, I've heard of it. Yeah. We haven't done any work on it, but I've heard the term for sure. Yeah. They were saying, I mean, in the, in the studies are all about staff retention and, and customer retention, how 85% of consumers are making a decision as to where they're going to spend their money based on whether or not that store, that company is putting money back out into the community to do good things as they are with putting money into their own pockets. And so, you know, there was some real statistics that were powerful for me that I absolutely tapped into and, and realized mm-hmm. the importance of making sure that my company was focused on causes that were important to them. So, Yeah. Yeah, we do things a little bit differently. So our top organization that we support is something called Breakthrough Austin. And that's really about helping low socioeconomic or underprivileged students uh, become first-generation college students. And this is really important to us. Not only are they Gen Z, but, you know, our founder and co-founder. So Denise, my wife, is our CEO. She was a first-generation college student. She had 52 first cousins. And just everything she went through, it just is pretty inspiring to be able to sort of come from where she came from and then, you know, go to college and then end up with a PhD lots of cultural things going on there as well. So that particular pathway is one that we really support. I didn't finish, as you know, I didn't finish college. I frankly, I didn't actually finish technically high school. And so, so for us, uh, 
you know, I wrote a book when I was 18. It became a bestseller. So I, you know, started my own business, slept on the floor of a garage apartment for a year, trying to make it all <laughs> that's work. That's what we do. So, that's what we do. Yeah, that's what we do. Hey, and um, it's life. It was, it was amazing. It was, it was the most challenging and the most rewarding. So we're really passionate about helping uh, underprivileged young people uh, overcome adversity in order to be successful. So that's what we sort of rally around here. But then also what we do, we pick charities that we want to support. And our employees get to pick some of those. And then, you know, whichever ones will donate money or they can volunteer. We do lots of cool things to try to, you know, within our means as a small business, really be supportive of our community. And we support a lot of community organizations. So for us, this is very, very uh, important and personal, I would say. And so we've really sort of stepped in into making that a part of who we are. In fact, interestingly, most of the work that we do to support nonprofits, uh, we do anonymously because we don't want it to be about us. Like this is just really about serving others, particularly here uh, in our community. And you know, what's interesting about that is our employees know and it gets them excited and they're fired up about what we're doing. But on the client side, most of our clients don't know that because you know it's just not the thing that, that we're known for. Like we are known for doing great research, solving really tough generational challenges and, and helping them with whatever their sort of mission is. But it is neat for us for, on an employment side to be able to speak to that. And, and we do some fun stuff. Like all our employees get off on their birthday. Uh, when you hit your three-year retention with us, I think you get $3,000 and a Make-A-Wish, which means you can spend the $3,000 on some dream that you've had that you've always wanted to spend money on and you never could. And oh, so you get $3,000 cool. uh, for your so Make-A-Wish, cool. which is awesome and stuff like that. So it's, uh, it's super awesome. That's cool. So, so if they wanted to spend that money on paying the, off a credit card, you wouldn't let them do that. It has to be on something, uh, a wish list, right? Well, technically, it's their money to do what they want, but we strongly encourage them to do something that's really meaningful, that's been a big wish. We've had people use it to pay for their weddings, uh, pay for a honeymoon they couldn't take, take a dream trip uh, with their family, family vacations, all kinds of stuff. And then we ask them uh, if they're comfortable to share with us what they did uh, with the money. And everybody loves it, you know, because then you sort of get to live a little bit of that experience and the joy and the excitement of what they got to do. So, yeah, it's really neat. And it's something I think is, is sort of unique for a business our size to be able to do that. So we, we really love that. That's cool. Well, what are some of the causes that, that you support, Lynn? I'd love to hear about that. Well, because there's, cause my audience is so large within our organization, you know, we're talking 15, 16,000 people. And because we have you know, four generations working and, and playing within our organization. And so it's everything from children's issues to the fight against slavery and sex trafficking of uh, veterans. Believe it or not, we work with the Gary Sinise Foundation, and that's one of the most popular ones. Um, people are very, very concerned about taking care of our, our true American heroes, uh, first responders. We do uh, a lot with uh, Children's Miracle Network Hospital. Gosh, we uh, play quite a bit in the world's water crises, you know, building freshwater wells around the planet. So, oh, and, and animals, you know, animal health and rescue and safety is a very, very important cause too. And some of these causes were things that I was passionate about. And so I, that's what I brought to the table. And then other people said, well, uh, this is what I'm really passionate about. And so I, I just find, so there's things that I raise money for and I scream from the rooftops and I use my power and my influence to make a difference, whether it's to raise money or to raise awareness. And it wasn't necessarily something that I'm passionate about, but for me to jump on that bandwagon in support of my team members or my customers is absolutely the right thing to do. 
Yeah, completely agree. You know, it, it's interesting. We, we've been so fortunate after being in this business now for uh, more than 20 years. Obviously, we started, I started this as a teenager. You know, the, um, I just absolutely love the ability of being able to help others. And now uh, we have some of the breakthrough students that, you know, we supported a long time ago uh, are now in great jobs or graduated from college or their parents went back to college. It's just such, it's so neat that we have enough sort of history now that we can look back and actually see that. We also run an internship program for first generation uh, students and, you know, getting in a professional setting like our office back when we, you know, actually all came to the office was always really exciting. So I, I think it's really for Denise and I, I know it's very important to us to support organizations that in our case help those that, you know, are coming from more challenging situations uh, to be able to realize that they can make it. And I think that's so important, particularly in a uh, highly polarized world right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure there are people listening to this that are thinking, oh my gosh, we have put zero thought and energy into this, into making sure that our company stands for more than just putting money into our pockets. You know, we, we take, 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 we're consumers, but uh, we need to be contributors to our local communities and our global communities. So thanks for yeah. that message. I apologize for being all over the map here. You should see my notes right now. My desk is like <laughs> such a mess because, my gosh, you talk so fast and I have, I'm like writing notes and questions on five or six different pieces of paper that are spread out here. So I'm all over the map. So can I ask you something? Because of COVID and, and people were, were sent home and, you know, go work from home, how do you feel that that's going to change how we now do business? Are, are companies going to say, you know what, this worked out really, really good? we can shrink our office space or your performance at home was better than it was when you were coming to the building. Is that going to change how we now uh, do business? I uh, guess and no. So we've done several studies on this. Probably our of most course famous you have. One. Don't you own a, a study <laughs> company? Isn't it? Yeah, that's what we do. So we did one on uh, leading multiple generations remotely. And we specifically looked at the impact of COVID-19 on work preferences and work habits. And so what we found, and this is sort of shocking, just over 50%, I believe it was 53% of all generations said they wanted to go back to work in a physical work environment, whatever that was for them. So a slight majority said, I do want to go back. It's very important to me to go back. And only about a third said, I want to stay working remote full time after the pandemic is over. So what we see is that there's a certain group of people that really like to be around others and share a, a safe physical space. I think safety is very much the key here. And they, they very much still want to get back to that. You know, eight hours of Zoom meetings is just exhausting or whatever that sort of version is. So there's definitely this desire for people to get back to some semblance of that. However, I think for lots of companies and lots and lots of our clients, they are realizing that a hybrid work environment is very effective. I mean, our team all works remote now. We have a whole office building here and nobody's here today but me. Uh, and they're all working from their respective houses or wherever they are, frankly. And so for us, it really helped us to see that we could do that and be very effective. And many of our clients in the same way are saying, wow, distance or remote or hybrid seems to really work. I think the interesting part is, and as we saw play out in the jobs report this week, uh, you know, many companies thought they could say could sort of weather the storm, figure it out, and then bring people back. And the reality is many of those companies are not coming back. Uh, and, you know, we've been saying that, unfortunately, since March, but that's because we, we studied this type of stuff, is that, you know, for many people, for many companies, they made workforce changes, technology changes, automation changes, and maybe their market change. And so they don't need as many or the same employees that they had before. And we've right. been saying this is a real hidden risk that's going to play out. And it just now really is starting to play out, particularly uh, if there's no government intervention. And so uh, we believe that there's a whole lot of people 
that are now going to be in a situation where they're going to struggle to find a job as good as what they had before. Uh, and I think that will really play out and we'll see how it does here. Um, depending on when you release this, you know, within a month or two of this, we should have a lot more insight, but, but I do think for many companies in order to weather the storm, they had to adapt. And then in adapting, maybe they found they could do more with less people, but we have, I mean, lots of our companies are growing very fast right now and they're struggling to hire. So I think we're, we sort of sometimes say that everybody's struggling, but the reality is there's lots of companies that are doing well out there, surprisingly, but there's a ton of them that are. And so there are opportunities that people maybe look in a different industry and, you know, that's never fun. And I'm not saying that we should go do that yet, but, but clearly there's going to be tremendous innovation that comes out of this and lots and lots of um, new job opportunities. But yeah. Well, what insights and advice do you have for leaders who maybe for the first time leading remotely? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a few things that our data has proved out. The first is that frequency of information is incredibly important in remote work. And we tested this. Basically, the younger your employees are, the more frequent communication they need. And I don't mean every hour, but at least twice a week we're finding. So what that means is if they're working from home or wherever they work from, they need to hear from their manager or supervisor at least twice a week. That could be text message, that could be IM, that could be Slack, that could be whatever it is. But they need to know that their boss knows they still exist. So frequency is very important. If they don't hear from their boss, they think they're not doing a good job or they could be fired or they've been forgotten about. All isn't of which that, Isn't that funny negative. because is, is, is it true that some older generations like my generation, baby boomers, we were thrilled if we never heard from the boss, right? That's exactly right, because as, as I say in my speech all the time, older generations were taught if your boss is talking to you, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> Younger generations were taught if your boss is not talking to you, you're doing something wrong. And now that's heightened in a non-physical environment where we're not you know, physically together. So frequency of information is incredibly important. The second is making sure that you have these touchstones around culture and purpose. And what we mean by that is you know, every day or every few days, you need to come up with whatever your huddle or meeting is that creates alignment, reminds people what you're focused on and shares with people what you're up to. We find that this sort of habit of creating culture is incredibly important when people are, are not physically working together. Super important, especially reminding about North Star and purpose. Uh, it's just, it's so easy to forget those things when you're working from home and you're, you know, athletes wear your pajamas or whatever. And so that's a real issue that we see. And the third one, which leaders, um, well, I should say it this way, employees and leaders don't like to talk about this, but it's very important. And this is probably the most important thing I'll share on this topic is that uh, we discovered how you let go of employees. So how you, you know, separate from employees determines the attitude of the employees who stay. And this is so important. So companies are having to let go of people, but how you let go of those people determines the attitude of the employees who get to stay. What do I mean by that? So letting people go with dignity and honor and respect uh, means so much because all the employees who get to stay are watching how you treated those that you had to let go. And those okay. employees are deciding, well, as soon as the economy comes back, I'm leaving, or wow, I really believe in this company. Look at how they treated them. I'm going to stay here. And the employees who are leaving are going to go write ratings and reviews about how that went down, which we know is going to impact you on the other side of the pandemic. So, so it's what are, very, very important. Well, then what are the best practices that you've discovered for that? The best practices we found are video and one-on-one. -on -one. Don't do things in a group. Don't do generic emails. Don't put out a video, like all that sort of jazz that people do. The best thing you can do is honor that employee by letting them know in a live Zoom or whatever you're able to do where you are uh, that, you know, the business has changed, the market has changed, and that, that you just can't find a way to keep them right now. 
but that you have deep respect for them, you appreciate them, you'll help them if you know if be a reference, assuming they're a great employee. Like all the things you want to, you'd want to hear if you were in their position, but you want to do it one on one. So right. at the very video we find is the best, and there's they so appreciate it. And and bosses tell me all the time, Jason, it's so awkward to look on Zoom and let somebody know that you're gonna have to let them go. I was like, well, what do you think happened in person? It was the same thing, yeah. right? It's just over video this time. And just remember, the reason it's awkward is because it's emotional. Like it is hard to let great people go. It sucks. But if that's what you have to do to keep the business alive, then that's what you have to do. But honor them and respect them and do what you can to help them. And everybody else will see it and they'll be more convicted and more fired up about who you are as a leader and the culture you're trying to build. And then maybe when things get better, you go try to hire them back. But the key is there are very long-term lasting culture impacts based on how you let people go right now. Well, so, so important for us to realize that right now. You know, we've been talking a lot about, I think, kind of more on the side of the, the employer and the company. Through all of this, what message would you, if you had a, an audience just full of Gen Z only, what would your message be to them, especially because of COVID and, and what's happening right now? What's mm-hmm. your strongest message to them right now? Yeah, that th- our strongest message to Gen Z is that nobody has ever been through this before. You have people saying, oh, I've been through this before. Nobody that you're working with has ever been through a pandemic like this. It's never happened. So everybody is sort of making it up and doing the best they can as we go forward. And that's just true in all these industries. Have we had uncertainty before? Absolutely. Have we had horrible, terrible times? I, I can give you a list of them, but this is unprecedented. And so it's okay to not know what's going to happen next. And it's okay and encouraged, and we saw this in our study, is that you should ask questions of your boss, of your supervisor, of your colleagues and teammates. Don't make assumptions. Because what we find is a lot of times Gen Z has the least work experience, and maybe they don't want to look dumb or, or amateur, so they don't ask questions. What we find is if you ask questions, they feel more confident, they know that you know the answers, and then you can help them through that. This is really important. So just fundamentally know that it's going to be okay, that we're going to get through this. We may not know how, we may not know what the other side looks like, but we are going to get through this. Just like we've gone through everything else before, including the pandemic, you know, whatever it was 100 years ago. So the point here is just know it's okay to feel uncertain. It's okay to not know what's going to happen next. That's all right. We're, we're going to make this through this. And how are we going to do that? Number one, we're going to keep learning and being adaptive. So we ask people, particularly Gen Z, keep learning. What does that mean? Watch some videos on YouTube. Watch some TED Talks. Whatever it is that works for you, go learn new skills on how to use social media to drive influence. But keep learning and pouring into yourself during this period of time. So very important. The worst thing we can do is just watch the news and these terrible headlines and get all this negative stuff that we take in. Instead, go do something that pours in something positive. You know, whatever that type of learning, whatever gets you excited, a hobby, whatever. But do something positive that's really helpful. Second is, we always talk to Gen Z about this and everybody else, but this is really important with Gen Z. Find somebody you can help. I've seen this over and over again in our work is if you help somebody else, you feel better too. And you feel like you've done something. So whatever it is, this is not about money. It's like, how can you help somebody else? Really powerful. And then the third one is, this is a great opportunity to refresh your digital or personal brand. So this is a great time to go online and make sure, for example, that you've got a good LinkedIn profile. And even if you're saying, but Jason, I don't have a lot of work experience. It's okay. 
totally fine. Gen Z's entered the workforce later than any previous generation in United States history. It is okay. But go out there and start to develop this sort of digital reputation that represents you in the way that you want to be represented. So make sure you have a LinkedIn profile. Make sure your social media looks good. If somebody types in your name, what comes up? Be a little bit thoughtful about it. Does that mean you need to be conservative or any of that? No, no. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying recognize what's out there. Recognize that's where other people see you. And make sure you're putting out the story or the narrative that you think best represents you. That's super important. And then with that, if you decide that you have time on your hands, and let's say that you're not working right now, find what I call a purpose project. Go create a project that really gets you fired up and then go act on it and talk about it on your social media, talk about it on your stuff. What we're finding is doing something positive in the world and letting people know, uh, it really pulls them in, which also leads to job opportunities and so forth. And then the last one is, if you are in a job and you are worried about you know, uncertainty or losing your job or these types of things, the best thing you can do is just do the best job you can. Like there is no secret sauce to it. People always ask me, Jason, what's the secret sauce to keep your job in a time like this? Just do the best you can. Because fundamentally, if you do the best you can and it still doesn't work out, then it wasn't the right place for you and there's something better out there for you. Or if you do the best you can all the way through this, then people are going to see it. And that's exactly who you want. If you have less staff, you want the ones you can count on because you know that you can count on them. You're, you're amazing. I asked one simple question and you've got the answer ready to go. Like, like we rehearsed this. We didn't rehearse this. We did not rehearse this with, I had no idea what questions you were going to ask. So I was as excited as everybody else. <laughs> not, that, not that I want to spend a lot of time on this, but you know, I, you, I'm sure you saw the movie, Social Dilemma. Uh, yeah, I've seen parts of it. I haven't seen the whole thing. We're saving uh, just, it actually. You know, just, the, the idea of what people put out there uh, scares me that, that people just post things and put things out there. It just concerns me. And when you talk mm -hmm. about your digital reputation, now is the time to focus on your digital reputation. What are the mistakes that people are making? And again, let's talk to Gen Z. Yeah, so Gen Z is the most photographed generation in the history of the world at this age, which is a big statement, but it also isn't. They've never known a time before social media. You know, in the Z Economy book, I talk about this a lot. They've come of age, always had their picture taken, always being able to take pictures, always taking videos. I mean, you know, a lot of what's going on in the world is because of the ease at which we have access to mobile devices so that we can take pictures or we can use video. So it's really fascinating. And so what we found with Gen Z is because Gen Z came of age with this and they're way more comfortable with it, uh, what we see is they, they've lived more of their life on digital than previous generations. And so there can be things out there, first of all, that maybe they don't want out there. So the first thing I always say about digital reputation is if somebody didn't know you and you were looking for a job or you wanted to do these things, and let's pretend you really wanted that job or you really thought the company culture alignment, whatever, and you went and looked at what comes up when you search your name on whatever that is, you know, would you hire yourself if you saw that? <laughs> I think that's a pretty good question, right? Now some would be question. like, of course I would. And I was like, okay, well, if you're in sales and you're selling, I'm going to make this up, life insurance and somebody goes on your Instagram, are they going to trust you with buying an insurance policy that will protect their family if one of them dies? Right, right. You know, now certain industries, maybe the stakes aren't that high, but this is the sort of thing that we think is super helpful. If you don't know, ask somebody that you respect, hey, when you look at this, do I come across in the way that I want to? Because man, this is like your personal branding piece. So you want to make sure and sort of, Give a good screen on that and just be really aware. And then if there's stuff out there that you, you know, don't want, maybe that was really cool three years ago and, and you don't think it is now, take it off. Nobody says you got to keep it on there. Take it off, right, and so forth. Second thing is make sure you have a LinkedIn profile. And I, and I harp on this, and, and stylists sometimes say this to me, well, Jason, you know, why don't nobody's finding me on LinkedIn? I'm like, well, you'd be surprised, number one. But number two, LinkedIn is one of the resources. It's sort of like your own website. You get to put whatever you want out there. Nobody can write anything negative. This is your place to sort of be your billboard on the web. 
You can put a nice picture, whatever that works for you. You can write about your passions, your hobbies, things you're interested in, your job experience. You can ask two or three friends to write you recommendations. And the reason this is so important is a LinkedIn index is very high in Google. Some people type in your name, let's say there's stuff out there that you didn't want them to see, then LinkedIn will at least come up first and at least you get a chance to make a great first impression. And then the latter is, if you've put stuff out there that you're not happy about, or maybe let's hope your views on the world have changed, whatever that happens to be, one of the best things you can do is start to put out new content that tells a new story. Talk about the things you're passionate about, write blogs, you know, write for media, like whatever it is, but put things out there that really better represent you now rather than maybe who you were five years ago, and then sort of create that digital reputation that shows where you really are. And there's all kinds of cool companies that will sort of give you a quick snapshot of these things, but generally, you can just go type your name in, and then type your name in with quotes and go through a little Google search and see what comes up and sort of get a sense of that. So I think at a very base level, that's a great place to be. Sort of phase two of that is really thinking about personal branding and thought leadership and writing articles that are around the areas that you're really passionate about and what you want to be known for. And the beauty now is you can do all those things uh, without having to do anything fancy, right? You can just use any of these different technologies and put out in the world sort of what you think about different things and, and start to build a brand that way. So well, another, tons of ways to do it. Another great way to respond to that. You know, we're going to start to wrap things up here a little bit. You had talked about, not on this podcast, but in other things that I've heard you talked about, about three different trends of diversity, technology, and parenting. And today you focused on the importance of parenting and technology, which I think we've talked about technology. Uh, just a, a little bit about parenting. You're a, you're a millennial. You're a parent. Why is that such an important trend? And, and what do we need to know about that? I, you know, I'm 61 years old. I'm a baby boomer. So later in life with an eight-year-old daughter and it's, it's all I think about. Absolutely. Well, and it's so interesting. So when we look at parenting, parenting really informs what kids think is normal. That's uh, modeling behaviors like how do you argue with other people in your household? How do you have tough conversations? How do you carry yourself? How do you treat other people? You know, how do you treat servers at a restaurant? How do you think about money? How do you talk about money? Is school important? These behaviors are, are heavily influenced by parenting. Now, it's not always the way we want, right? Sometimes they go, oh, I don't want to be like you. <laughs> and so as we sort of think about that, you know, we joke, but baby boomers often said we want to raise our kids uh, the way that the, the opposite of the way we were raised, right? We want yeah. it to be easier for our children than it was for us. And then that has its own set of consequences or side effects. So parenting is really important. And what you think is normal relationships with technology as a parent are normal. Did you give kids iPad when they're young and now they think it's very normal to go use a screen when they're four years old or what have you. So parenting we find is very, very important and how you think about parenting and what are your parenting resources. So when you look at sort of the trends that we believe are really shaping, parenting is, is a very big one that's just not talked about enough. But if you look at how people choose to parent and particularly what they choose to model in terms of behaviors, that really tells us a lot about you know, what we can expect at a generational level. And that seems like, do all kids need to go to college to be successful? That's a real thing that people think, you know, this sort of stuff. And then some of the other trends, like you said, I think technology, technology we know our relationship with technology varies um, by generation and by age. And so if you know somebody's natural relationship with technology, then you can often figure out how to best engage with them. Some people really love email. Some people love phone calls. Some people really like Zoom. Some people want to meet socially distanced in person. Sometimes in the sales process, some people want to know you got a guarantee. Other generations are like, no, just send me a video. <laughs> like All of these things sort of play into that. And then the diversity piece is incredibly important. 
Gen Z is the most diverse generation in U.S. history. Uh, diversity is so important to them, and not just diversity, but true inclusion. And we see them bring that into everything that they do, and it's incredibly exciting. And we think it's a very important trend that's going to have profound um, ramifications as, as they continue to have more influence and move up. So you start to put all those together, and you see, most importantly, Gen Z is not Millennials 2.0. And I think that might even be one of the opening lines of the, the book. Like this is a completely different generation that has some different views around the world, raised differently with different technology. And because of that, what they're bringing into the workforce or they're bringing as customers that is normal presents a huge challenge and a huge opportunity. Wow. And that's what gets me fired up, as you know. <laughs> I, as, as I know. Okay, so you have all this knowledge and research and you're well-spoken and you've got these best-selling books and you use all of this knowledge to help other companies, and that also then helps put money into your own pocket. That's your own paycheck. But if you were to use all of this knowledge and experience and wisdom that you have just solely to create a better home for yourself, for your wife, for your child, how would you best define and and use this information to create that? Is that a question that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, in our own lives, you know, Denise and I talk very frankly and, and, our, and try to really think through how we want to parent, how we want to raise our daughter, what are the values we're trying to instill in her. And I think, you know, it's not easy and nobody's got it right. And, and you know, we joke that, that we don't teach parenting because we're not parenting experts, even though we study it. I think you really need to trust people that are domain experts. You know, our focus is generations. But for us, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, our daughter uh, goes to a school that, where all the classes are in Spanish. And that's really important to us because we wanted Raya, is our daughter's name, we wanted Raya to be bilingual. Uh, and in fact, now she's learning Mandarin, so she'll know three languages. And she's nine years old, and to her, she thinks it's normal. Uh, we were joking the other day that she just turned in a project, and she built it. So she's nine, so she's in fourth grade now. She built it in Google Slides. She wrote it in English and in Spanish. It had animation. She then presented it, recorded it, and uploaded it, and then waited for her teacher's response, which came back, I think, in a video. And to her at nine, this is totally normal. <laughs> and, you know, her Spanish is beautiful. My, my wife, uh, as you know, is Hispanic. And so we really wanted Raya to grow up and, you know, speak Spanish and appreciate you know, different cultures and backgrounds and, and so forth. And just a lot more diversity, uh, certainly, than I saw. So as we sort of think through that, um, those are the types of things that we do with her. Uh, and there's a lot more in terms of how we help her think about money and saving and giving and stuff. But the idea fundamentally is like, I, I want to help her develop those skills and muscles and talent, if you will, to be successful in what makes her happy. And, and even if that means doing things differently uh, than the decisions we made, that's okay. But we want her to be uh, hopefully well-informed about that and then, and then make the decisions that she thinks is right. So okay. all that said, I still can't get her to pick up her shoes. So, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. She's nine. I mean, I'm dealing with it. <laughs> wow. wow. Oh my gosh, Jason, you're, this, this enthusiasm. I know people who are so knowledgeable, but as they're sharing all of their knowledge, you almost become bored, almost like they are bored with it or they're put out with all this knowledge and experience and you just come with this incredible energy that just makes your, your information come alive. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Well, I love this. It's been a, a long and exciting journey with lots of ups and lots of downs and just grateful to get to share what we find. I mean, well, what, see, what a wonderful gift. Tell us how can our listeners go for your, your book, stay up to date with all your research and all your discoveries Again, the book is Z-Economy, How Gen Z Will Change the Future of Business and What to Do About It. So how can people learn more about you? 
Sure, uh, thanks. The best way to learn more about me and our work at the Center for Generational Kinetics, you can go to my website, which is jasondorsey.com, J-A-S-O-N-D-O-R-S-E-Y.com. And you can watch my videos on there. You could see the Megalennial versus Millennial split. You can download a bunch of our studies. We got tons of fun stuff, it's all free on there. Uh, and then if you want really dig into the research, uh, you can go to our research website, which has a lot more research, and that's at genhq, G-E-N-H-Q.com. And if you want our latest research, in which we put out research every month, you can just sign up for a newsletter. It's free. And then uh, we'll send you whatever the cool new discoveries are. We do lots of free webinars. We just love to get the information out. And then if you want to buy a book, uh, I'd love for you to buy it on Amazon or wherever you prefer to buy things. You can do the Audible too. We even recorded it. And I would really be incredibly grateful if you did that and left a review because uh, it's really important to me and to Denise. It took us two years to write the book. So I'm really sure, happy it just came out. <laughs> I'll make sure that uh, all this information is, is available through uh, what I put out about you. And this actually is going to be released right away. So just so you know, by the time people are listening to this, it's within 30 days of the time that you and I are recording this. So, so. Oh, fantastic. What wonderful time, especially around the holidays. We'll have a lot of generations coming together and they will need this. <laughs> that is great. That's great. Well, again, um, Jason, this was worth the couple of year wait <laughs> to finally be able to connect with you. And I, I just appreciate you. Not exactly sure how I came across you, but I, I always look forward to getting those email updates and then I would forward them to my team. I want you to know that at 4.30 this morning when I woke up and I put the fire on to create some ambiance because I love ambiance, the video that I watched of you, which I think was 18 minutes long, had over 700,000 views. So you're out there, people are watching, and you're making a difference. So thanks, Jason. I thank you, and I'm grateful for you, and, and I love your book, and so thank you so much for having me on. It's always great to visit with you. really appreciate Beautiful. you. You're a good man. Keep it up. <laughs> <laughs>